Well, God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today, and thank you so much for coming. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there, so we bring that service to you, wherever you are, anywhere in Israel, anywhere in the world. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Would you open in your Bibles to the book of Genesis? Of course, that's where we're studying through nowadays. And we're all the way up at chapter 34, and that's where we're going to be today. And as you know, we'll also put those verses up here for you in the video just to make it easier for you to follow along. Today, I'd like to talk to you about where God leads. You know, many people today go through life trying to plan their own lives constantly changing their plans, throwing away those plans that didn't work, regretting those plans that ended in disaster. They might believe that God is their creator, but they don't necessarily realize that He created them for a reason, that He has a plan for their lives. They have a purpose in life that they were created to fulfill, and they have unique capabilities and skills and gifting that God has given them so that they would be successful in fulfilling that calling. And the plan that God has for you will always be the one that makes you the happiest and makes your life the most meaningful. So it's always best, you see, to let God lead you in life. Only then will you actually end up in the right place at the right time and and with the right people. Only then will your life get to the high and noble calling that God has for you. He also places you in places, in locations where you need to be as you go through life. He has people that He wants to bring across your path there. And so He needs to put you over there so that you can intercept those people. They'll think it's just coincidence, but some of those people will need to hear of God's love. And God sent you there to show them God's love. Others might be sent by God to bless you and encourage you instead. And you need to be there at the right time in the right place. And so you may just be one of those several divine appointments that the Lord will bring across a person's path sometime in their life at some place. And through you and others, whom God will send, that person will eventually come to know God's love and be saved. But you may only be a part of the puzzle instead of the whole person that would bring the entire message to that person. You might just be one part of several people that God brings across that person's path until they see, until they get it, until they understand the gospel and give their life to the Lord. God will use you in different ways in life, in different locations, like I said, wherever He places you. But make no mistake, He calls you to a place for a reason, for a purpose. And you'll never realize that noble reason for your life. You'll never be completely content until you yield yourself to God's leading and answer His call. Now that means putting aside your own plans and ambitions and making yourself available for Him to use. In fact, the book of Yermiyahu Hanavi, Jeremiah the prophet, in the Tanakh, in chapter 10 and verse 23, it says, I know, Lord, that our lives are not our own. 
we are not able to plan our own way. Well, now that's pretty clear, isn't it? We're not able to plan our own lives. So why do we spend so much time trying to do so? But then later in the same book of Jeremiah, God says in chapter 29, verse 11, that He has plans for your life. He says it like this, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And certainly His plan for you is perfect. It's the one that will bring you the most happiness and fulfillment in life. But you're tempted to look at things through your limited human understanding, aren't you? I think we all are. You think that the grass is greener over there, that you should go this way, or that you should do that thing. And you have these thoughts in your own mind trying to plan your own way, even though the Bible says you're unable to do it. But you don't really know, you see. All you have is a feeling about which way to go. You know, the problem is, is feelings can deceive you. You feel good about a decision one day. Then the next day, you find out that nothing worked out like you thought it would. You're never quite happy where you are. You always think that someplace else is better. But the truth is, you're just hoping that things will work out somehow. In reality, you don't know. We don't know, but God knows. He knows all things, and He knows the future. You don't know what's around the corner. You can't see what tomorrow will bring. Circumstances will change, just like the weather, but God knows the future. He knows all those circumstances. He knows the hidden things that you can't see. He sees it all. So He knows where to put you today so that you'll be safe tomorrow. And He knows where you need to be and when you need to be there to fulfill your purpose, your calling in life. It's better to give your life to Him and to ask Him to lead you in life. Ask Him to put you where you need to be. That's what the Tanakh says in the book of Proverbs, verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not unto your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll direct your paths. Well, again, that's pretty clear. <clears throat> Don't lean to your own understanding. In all of your thoughts, in all of your ways, in all of your intents and planning, acknowledge Him and let Him direct your paths. Now, you may think that you're wise and that you're smart and you've thought of everything and that you've covered all those bases, as we say. And, but in reality, you're just a little child compared to God and you need to hold on to your Heavenly Father's hand and let Him guide you through life. Then and only then will you be truly happy and content in life. Then you'll be able to avoid the pain of a wrong turn like Yaakov, Jacob, experienced in this chapter today. Let's read his story in Genesis 34 now and see what happened to Jacob. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Yaakov, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attached, attracted to Dinah, 
the daughter of Yaakov, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Give me this young woman as a wife. Now I want to talk to you about these verses. This is a hard chapter that we're going through today. It's an awkward chapter. But let's just go through what we know about it so far. Dinah had 11 brothers, no sisters. She was alone. She was young and she didn't know the culture and the new place that they were. She didn't know that in that culture, an unattached girl, a girl who was walking through the city alone, could be attacked and kidnapped and sexually assaulted, raped. Everything was different there in Shechem. And it seems that women were just like property to those people. They weren't respected well. People just took whatever women that they wanted and took them as a wife. And here's now Dina from a faraway place walking into the city. And the guys see her and this one fell in love with her. But it wasn't real love. It was a, a lust, a lust of the flesh. But what was Yaakov doing to begin with in bringing his family to Shechem? It says in Genesis 31 verse 3 that the Lord had told Yaakov to return to his home and his family back in Canaan. But Shechem was not his home. Then when he saw his brother Esau in just the last chapter that we studied last week, he told Esau that he was going to Seir to join him there and that he'd see him there later. But instead, when Esau left, Yaakov went the opposite direction. And all of his sons and daughters, they knew that he had lied to his brother. It seems that Yaakov was not being a very good example to his children. He was lying in front of his family. His life seemed to be telling his children that it's okay to lie and to be dishonest. Oh, they watch. They look at you. They see the example that you're making in your own life. They don't listen to what you say unless you walk the talk that you talk. If you are telling them to be honest and not to lie, then they better not see you lie and be dishonest in your dealings with other people. Now this terrible thing has happened to Yaakov's daughter, Dinah. And also notice that the young man who attacked Dinah says he loves her. But if he truly loved her, he would not have attacked her and raped her. And in a way, that's the way the world is with love. It often confuses lust with love. And now generations of people have been raised thinking that lust is love. They could not be more different. That's the way it was with Shechem, the son of Hamor. He lusted after Dinah. He didn't love her. Lust only looks at another person for something that they can get from that other person. But love, real love, looks on another person for what they can give some other person, not what they can get. How they can help that person, not how that person can help them. True love is concerned about caring for that other person in life. True love is not about getting, it's about giving. And in today's world, so many times a man and a woman will marry each other thinking that the marriage would be the smart thing to do. A partnership, if you will. 
a business arrangement. Sometimes they even draw up contracts before they get married. That's not love. That's not a marriage. That's a business merger. You're treating each other like business partners. You want to make sure that you get everything in it that you want in it. You're not concerned with the other person. That's not a way to go about marriage. The way to go about marriage is to love each other and serve each other and outdo each other in serving each other. Like we said earlier, marriage is not about getting, it's about giving. Now, if you look at the way that the world looks at things today, it's not real love. But without real love, true giving love, any relationship is doomed to failure. You might have lust, you might be physically attracted to someone of the opposite sex, and, but then when you try to get together and base a relationship on that, th that relationship is doomed to failure. And in the end, two hearts are broken maybe and two lives are destroyed for sure. It's better to wait for true love and to love not for what you can get out of a relationship, but for how you can love and care for your wife or your husband. True love, God's love, is a giving, selfless love. And that kind of love is like a treasure that you find. It's the real thing. It's not some cheap, temporary substitute. Now let's continue reading from verse 5. It says, And Yaakov heard that he, that this young man, uh, Shechem, had defi defiled his daughter Dina. And now it, his sons were with his livestock in the field, it says in verse 5. So Yaakov held his peace until they came. In other words, he didn't say anything until they came. Verse 6, Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, the man who raped Yaakov's daughter, went out to Yaakov to speak to him. Verse 7 says, And the sons of Yaakov came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry. This was their sister, you see. Because this man, Shechem, the son of Hamor, had done this disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Yaakov's daughter, having sex with her. A thing which ought not to be done. And the Bible teaches, yes, that is correct. It ought not to be done. Sexual relations outside of marriage are not approved by God. No matter how you want to spiritualize it, no matter how you try to define it, you say, oh, well, we're already married in the eyes of the Lord. Well, then it won't hurt you to just get the paper to show and prove that you're married. And in fact, doesn't the Bible said to abstain from all appearance of evil? So why not just go ahead and get that piece of paper if you're already married in the eyes of the Lord and wait for God to bless this by confessing this before men as well that you're married and making it official. If you do that, you're showing your wife, husbands, that you really mean it, that you really do want to spend your life with her, and that you're not afraid to commit to marriage, even in a piece of paper. Wives, the same way. If you're marrying for security, if you're marrying for someone to share the bills, that's not going to work out. But if you're marrying for love and you're in love, love with this guy, then you should commit to marriage. 
Now, some people say, well, I've had people in my family that they got married and it didn't work out. My mother went through two divorces. I know a person who went through three divorces. Those people are not you. If you get married in the eyes of God, then God will bless your message, your marriage, and it will not be about your ability to keep it together. It will be about God's. You're here. Your spouse is here. God is here. And the closer you both get to God, look at what's happening, the closer you both get together. God wants you to be blessed in marriage. He gave the husband, the wife, to be a blessing and a helpmate. He gave the husband to the wife so that he would be a keeper and one who would spiritually lead the family and love and even give his life for his wife. Wouldn't you want that kind of love? What are you doing watching those TV shows where people are having sex with everybody? They're going behind someone's back and going out with someone else. You see so many of those shows over your lifetime that you think that that's just the way life is. That's not the way life is. That's the way Hollywood wants you to think life is, that everyone's a liar, that everyone's a cheater, that everyone is just out for lust and that love is not real. That's the Hollywood of the world that's owned by Satan. Satan is the king of the world, the prince of the world, you see, and he wants everybody to think that love is not real that it's just a play act just to get money, just to get lust and things like that in their lives. The world's love is not real love. It says love cheaply. Oh, I love you. Love you. See you later. What does that mean? You see, you can mean love without even saying a word. But when you say it and you mean it, then it has special meaning. But if you say it and you don't mean it, everybody knows that you don't need, mean it, especially the person you're saying it to. They've been around the block before with you. They've seen that your kind of love is just a love for what you can get out of it. But when you give your life and dedicate your life to serving someone else, watching out for that wife, men, taking care of that woman, then she will know that your love is the real deal. Now we see in verse 6, it says, Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to speak with Jacob, Yaakov, and the sons of Yaakov came in from the field when they heard it, just like we read. And the sons of Yaakov, these men were grieved and angry because of this disgraceful thing that had been done. And then we saw that in verse 8, Hamor spoke with them. He's trying to negotiate with them now. It says, he doesn't even care about their feelings. He goes right to verse 8 and he says, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Oh my goodness. And then verse 9, And make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters to yourselves. And so shall you dwell with us in the land and it will be before you. Dwell in it, trade in it, acquire possessions for yourselves. Get rich is what he's saying, and we'll get rich too. It's a business agreement. We'll shake hands on it. We'll do this as a business contract. The world, it's not about love. It's just a business of some kind. Verse 11, Then Shechem said to her father, uh, Then Shechem said to her father, 
uh, Yaakov and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give you. Verse 12, ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. This is the guy that raped their sister, that raped Yaakov's daughter, Dinah. Now, here we see how easily Yaakov had stopped being Israel. Remember God changed his name to Israel? You remember what Yaakov meant? It meant selfish, deceiver, con man. God changed his name from that to Israel, which meant governed by God. But you see how easily now Yaakov, who has recently just met the Lord, stopped being Israel, stopped being governed by God, and slipped back into the old man, started being selfish and deceiver, con man again. It doesn't seem like he's concerned about what happened to his daughter. We don't see that he says anything about that. He's more concerned about the business potential in this new land where he's arrived. What he can have there in Shechem. He starts talking business with the native inhabitants of Canaan. And look at how sinful their own culture had become in Shechem. A people without the Lord will quickly become sinful, selfish, and violent. Stealing, lying, all sorts of immorality. In fact, the scripture even says that the nation that forgets God will be turned into hell. I know if you've lived any number of years at all, you can look around you, you can remember how it was before and how it is now. And no matter really how old you are or how young you are, I'm sure you can tell that just recently even, the nation, the world has gotten more evil. The nation that forgets God will be turned into hell. Didn't say how gradually it would be turned into hell. But I think we see those dynamics throughout the world. The world is certainly being turned into hell. And the world is trying to trick you into ignoring God so that you will not have everlasting life. Satan wants to get even with God for kicking him out of heaven. But God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. Satan can't do anything against the creator of all things. Satan is just a created thing. With the blink of God's eye, he could take Satan and all of his demons and turn them into ashes and put their ashes at the edge of the universe. But Satan can't do anything against God, you see. So how does he try to hurt God? He tries to hurt God by hurting those whom God loves. That's you. That's me. That's us. That's the people of the earth that God created in His image. So Satan tries to keep them from discovering that they can have everlasting life by believing on Jesus Christ as the Lord. Yeshua HaMashiach. As the Lord and as, as the Savior, as the Mashiach, you see. And if he can keep them from that, then he keeps them from everlasting life. And that breaks heart, God's heart. Because God sent His only begotten Son so that they might be saved by believing on Him. So Satan is trying to keep God out of the minds of the people of the world. The nation that forgets God will be turned into hell. And you know, a lot of that is not really God doing that, turning them into hell. It's the very fact that they have forgotten God 
They don't want him to keep them and watch over them. They don't want him to protect them. And so Satan takes out all of his anger and wrath on them. And he is the one that beats them up and turns them into hell because hell is his place. Now that's the kind of place that Yaakov has now taken his family. Just to increase his business, he's taken them down there to Shechem. Jacob's sons, however, seem to be more concerned about their sister than their father. The brother is usually more concerned about the sister. The brother is usually concerned about trying to protect them and watch over them and keep track of them and make sure they don't get hurt or get into trouble. Here, in this respect, it seems like the sons of Yaakov are being more concerned about Dinah than their father Yaakov is. Seems like he's only concerned about the business and his own self. He's now no longer trying to be Israel. He slipped back into Yaakov. Maybe you know the Lord, but you have times of slipping back into the old person. You've got to watch it because the devil is there trying to get you to slip back. You need to stay in the Word of God every day. You need to stay in prayer every day, and you need to fellowship with other believers. They'll hold you accountable. You'll hold them accountable. They'll hold each other up. You'll encourage each other. So with the Word of God, that's the water that that seed needs to, needs to grow. With prayer, that's the fellowship or the sunshine that that seed needs to grow. And the fellowship, then you'll make sure that the weeds can't get in there and choke you out, you see. You need all three of these things to continue in the Lord and not slip back into the old person. Now let's continue on in verse 13. It says in verse 13 of chapter uh, 34 of Genesis, But the sons of Yaakov answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully. In other words, they were trying to appear to agree with this guy's proposal that they would share the land together and, and, and take daughters for wives from each other and all. And if, if Dinah would be given to Shechem, the son of Hamor in Shechem, in the city of Shechem, which apparently was named after him, I don't know. But it says that they spoke deceitfully in verse 13 as they spoke to Shechem. They know that he's the one that raped their, their sister. And they spoke deceitfully and they came up with a plan in their mind because he had been the one that had defiled their sister Dinah. And verse 14 says, And they said to him, We cannot do this thing to give you our sister because you're uncircumcised. That would be a reproach to us. Verse 15 then goes on, But on this condition we will agree with you, we'll consent to you, if you will become as we are if every male of you is circumcised. Then verse 16 says, Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we'll take our daughter and be gone. Now, here the sons of Yaakov are not being honest. They're being deceptive. Where did they learn that? We've already talked about how their father has already lied to Esau. We've already talked about how the father even told their mothers, Leah and Rachel, that God wanted him to return to his own family, his own home, but now he hasn't returned to his own family, his own home. He's gone somewhere else. They all saw him lie to Esau, saying, I'll meet you in Seir, and then he went the opposite direction. 
So it shouldn't really surprise us when the father is okay with dishonesty and lying. It shouldn't surprise us that the sons and the children are also okay with lies and being deceptive because they learn from you, parents. They learn from you. It's not enough to say, do this, do what I say and don't do what I do. That's hypocrisy. And they recognize it. And they figure if you really, really mean it, and it's really, really important, then you'll be doing what you say also. But they're seeing their father lie and be deceptive and dishonest. So they're lying and being deceptive and dishonest. They know that there's too many men in Shechem for them to do battle against. It's a big city or a town there. And they've got a lot of people that have joined themselves to Yaakov, many that were born there over the years. He inherited everything from Abraham, his grandfather. And even then, the clan was so big that kings would ask them to leave their cities because they were more powerful than all of their kingdom. Well, that was his grandfather. Under Esau, his father, it grew even more. And now Jacob's got all of these people. But they're not enough to do battle with a whole city like that. They know that there's too, men, too many men for them to battle against. And so they come up with an evil plan. A couple of these brother, uh, sons of Yaakov come up with a plan to get all of those men weak from the procedure of circumcision. And then they'll attack them when they're weak and in bed and can't get up. And they'll kill them all. Now make no mistake. This is an evil plan. These men, the sons of Yaakov, are not being righteous at all. Just because they're the sons of Yaakov doesn't mean this is righteous. Understand that. The Bible speaks of this as almost a shame on the patriarch of Yaakov and his family. Because it's an evil thing. And God had said, you shall not kill, you see. But the sons of Yaakov are lying, they're deceiving. And they're planning and they're plotting murder. This is not from God. Now consider this. If the Bible were simply a book that men wrote, like so many godless people say, and if it were not a message from God himself, the writers would have never written such bad things about the stars of the Bible, the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would have never written bad things about these people that they want everyone to respect. But Genesis 34 is unique in all the Bible. It talks about Yaakov and his, the 12 tribes of Israel, all of his sons. It talks about them in a very, very unflattering way. It says about the bad things that they've done. Now, the writers would have never written these bad things if the Bible had written, just been written by man and inspired by man. But God told these people what to write. And in what he told them to write, it's really condemning Yaakov and the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why is he concerned about this? Why is God doing this? Because God's showing that it's not about man's righteousness, that this family would be in the lineage of his Mashiach, the Messiah, Yeshua. 
It's not about their righteousness. It's about His mercy, His love, and His righteousness in providing atonement for all of the sins of mankind. That if He can save and use these men, who were supposedly the heroes of the Bible, and yet they've done such evil in murdering all of these people, then He can use anybody. He could use me. He could use you, you see. It's not about what you've done. It's about who He is. It's not about who you are. It's about what He's done. In fact, writers, if, they, if this was just men writing this book, they would have made every effort they could to hide the events of Genesis 34 so that you would not think anything but high thoughts about the 12 leaders of the tribes of Israel and Yaakov, their father. They would have hid this evil act. They would have tried to hide it and not put it in the Bible at all. But the very fact that it's in here shows that God is the author of the Bible. Now, in the future, people are going to read this account, and they're going to come to the conclusion, while men really are evil, all of us are evil, but God is good. But God is good. The author of the Bible is God. God always tells the truth. He's not going to hide it. He's going to tell you the truth. The very fact that these Bible characters are recording is doing these evil things shows that God is a God of mercy and that man is not righteous and needs God's mercy. You see what I'm saying? But that unrighteous man can be saved by God's plan of believing on God's Mashiach, Yeshua, the man that God would send to take atonement, make atonement for the sins of mankind. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ as you would say in English. Now let's continue from verse 18. It says, And their words, the words of the sons of Yaakov, pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do this thing because he delighted in Yaakov's daughter. He was more honorable than the household of his father, it says. Verse 20, And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men in their city, saying, Now these men are at peace with us. Speaking about Yaakov and his sons and all the people with them and the flocks. He's saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and we'll give them our daughters as wives for them. Only on this condition, though, will the men consent to dwell with us to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. And then he says to them, Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Let us consent to them, and they'll dwell with us. He's saying, you're going to get their property. I know it's hard. Circumcision is a hard thing to think about, but look at all that you'll get out of this. Then verse 24, and it says, And all who went out of the gate of his city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, and all who went out of the gate of the city. Now, of course, this would be very, very difficult to try to sell and, and convince the men of the city to be circumcised. 
someone says, oh, well, listen, we got a business deal that we're trying to make and it's going to make me and my son really wealthy, but you have to be circumcised too. No, they don't make it just about Hamor and his son Shechem. They make it about all of the people who said, we're all going to be rich if we'll join with these, but they won't let us join with them unless we're circumcised. Then we'll be set for life. You won't ever have to worry again. They've got so much wealth, so many flocks, all of this stuff and everything. Plus, we'll get their daughters as wives. We'll give our daughters to them. We'll be a larger people group now, and other uh, countries can't attack us because we'll be large enough together that we can defend ourselves. They make all of these reasons. Now, there's some evidence that other people groups that lived at the time in that region had forms of circumcision, not all of them, but a few of them. But still, there had to be a very compelling reason for the circumcision if all the men of the city were going to agree to it. I mean, think about it. Would you agree to that, guys, unless there was some really, really powerful reason to agree to it? So Hamor goes to the city gates, right? As we know from before, reading it elsewhere in the book of Genesis, the city gates were where the rulers of the city met. Why did they hang around at the gates? Because that's where the businessmen entered the cities. And they would make business deals with the men who would come in the cities. And just like city officials today, they would assess fees and taxes and get money for people to come into their city and do business. And so the city gates were like city hall. That's where the rulers, that's where the city councilmen were at the gates of the city and doing what a lot of politicians do, just trying to enrich themselves by letting people come in, you see. Unfortunately, not always, but a lot of politicians are like that. They arrive at Congress, they arrive at Senate, and they're not millionaires. Two years later, they're millionaires. Funny thing is, is if you look at the salary that the uh, Constitution and the laws of the United States gives them, it's a few hundred thousand, it's not millions. And yet somehow, a couple of years later, they become multi-millionaires. Sounds like to me they're selling influence, just like the people at the gates of Shechem were selling influence to the business leaders that come in there. In fact, you could probably call those business leaders lobbyists, if you will. I mean, it's the same mechanism, the greed of man. When God is not a part of the society, dishonesty, greed, theft, all of these evil things have free course to grow in society. But when God is the head of society, these things don't happen nearly as much. And when they do happen, they're caught, they're dealt with, and God keeps a place in righteousness. So Hamor goes to the city gates, and that's where the rulers were in those days. And he talked with them, and that was their offices, their city hall. He met with them, and he convinced them. Hamor went there and told the leaders of the city how important this agreement would be. He told them Yaakov's people were wealthy and had a lot of flocks and livestock, and it would be a good business move to be circumcised so that Yaakov would do business with them, with the people of Shechem, you see. Then he even says that eventually Yaakov's wealth and flocks and possessions would belong to the people of Shechem. 
He's got this evil plan himself. He said, yeah, once they, once they sign up with us and, and they're living with us, then we'll find a way to get their possessions and they'll be ours. That's what he's saying. Sadly, when the godly people mix with the world, that's what happens. Anything good that they had gets lost. And the godly people take on the evil habits and ways of the worldly people that they hang out with. You know that's the truth. Now let's continue on as we wrap up this chapter in verse 25. It says, Now it came to pass on the third day when the men were in pain, they've all been circumcised on the third day. That's when you're in the most pain and they're laying down. They can't get up. They're weak, waiting to heal from the circumcision. It came to pass that on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Shimon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all of the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword. And they took Dinah from Shechem's house. She had been there the whole time, kidnapped, held for ransom. And then these guys had the nerve to come to Yaakov and his sons and talk nicely to them. And now they have to set her free when they kill her captors. And she went out. And then verse 27 says, The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and then plundered the city. They stole all of their wealth, all their possessions, because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep. They took the oxen, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and whatever was in the field, all of their wealth. All of their little ones and their wives they took captive. And they plundered even all that was in the houses. Now we see the evil plans that Shimon and Levi had came up with and the plans that they executed. All of the men of the city are killed. It wasn't all of the men of the city that had defiled Dinah, their sister. It was only Shechem, the son of Hamor. But in their anger, they executed unrighteous judgment. That is not of God. God punishes the person who does the evil. He lets the other people alone, looks at their own life for other evil that they've done as well. God is righteous and holy and just. Shimon and Levi were just angry. The Bible says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do you live by that? Or do you try to get even with other people as you go through life and they do you wrong. Though it was one person who, ra who raped Dina, all of the men were executed because of the anger of man, because of the evil that was inherent in the hearts of men, even the sons of Yaakov and Shimon and Levi. This was certainly not something that God approved of. Now, even Yaakov, near the end of his life, later in Genesis 49, you're going to see that he's pronouncing blessing on his 12 sons at that time before his passing. He's an old man in Genesis 49. We'll see that later. And he denounces, as he's blessing all of his other sons, he denounces the violence of Shimon and Levi that was done by them at Shechem that day so long ago. And Yaakov prophetically states that they would be scattered in Israel. And that prophecy later was indeed fulfilled. The tribe of Shimon was later absorbed 
and to the tribe of Judah and ceased to exist as a tribe of its own. Levi was also scattered in Israel, but Levi was scattered as a blessing to Israel because even though Levi was part of the murdering of these people back then with Shimon, Levi later, when Moses was leading Israel out of the land of Egypt and the people made a golden calf and worshipped it, at the end Moses said, okay, everyone who's with me, come over here with me. And all of the Levites came over there with Moses. Moshe Hanavi is how we say it. Moses the prophet. They came over there with him. So they took a stand for righteousness at that time. So God did not destroy them and scatter them like he did Shimon. Instead, he scattered them throughout Israel. They didn't have any land of their own, but they were scattered to where they would become priests to all of the areas around Israel, to the people around the various cities to where they would set up places to worship and people uh, to teach the law of God that God would give them on Sinai. So you see, these prophecies came true that Yaakov would later say. But then finally, let's close out this chapter with the last two verses, verses 30 and 31. It says in verse 30, Then Yaakov said to Shimon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land among the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and since I am few in number, I will, uh, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me, and I'll be destroyed, my household, myself, all my family, he's saying. But then the sons answered him back, but, should they, but they said, should they treat our sister like a harlot? And that's the way the chapter ends. Now it's sad that Yaakov is still not saying anything about his daughter Dina. And really, he's not even saying anything at all about those other men who were just murdered, who didn't even participate in this crime, you see. He's not saying anything at all about that. Yaakov seems to only be concerned with himself. And that's kind of sad, isn't it? I mean, as we, as we see the way that Yaakov is dealing with this situation, it seems like He's got misplaced priorities. All these priorities in his life are only about himself, his own business, his own welfare, his own safety. What about what happened to Dina, your daughter, Yaakov? What about, happened, what about what happened to all those men who were murdered in that city just now by your two sons? But instead, Yaakov is not concerned about those things. He's only talking about how unsafe his own life will be as the rest of the countryside and the other cities and everything hears about what his sons did and he thinks that they're going to rise up against him and then do these things to him and kill him and his family. That's all he's concerned about. Well, have you ever thought, Yaakov, that God did promise you that you're going to have descendants as numerous as the sands on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the heaven, and that all who bless your descendants are going to be blessed, and all who curse them are going to be cursed. This is what God has promised Yaakov. But Yaakov is not acting like Israel anymore, like we said. He's not acting like the man who's governed by God. He's acting like the man who is trying to govern himself trying to plan his own life, trying to go where he wants to go instead of where God told him to go. He's forgotten the promises of God to multiply and bless his own descendants, and he's worried about his life. It may be that inside he senses 
that God is not with him in this because he's not obeying God. He didn't go where God wanted him to go. He's not doing what God told him to do. Now certainly this is a difficult chapter to read. It shows the evil in the hearts of men. It shows the dangers of trying to plan your own lives. Remember, in this chapter, Yaakov has disobeyed God. God told him to go back to his home and to his family, but he went somewhere else instead. He figured, he figured he'd be better off there. He thought in human reasoning that he'd be better off there. Yaakov told his brother Esau that he'd meet him in Seir. Instead, he goes the opposite direction, ends up in Shechem. And remember when Yaakov left Laban in Padanaram, his wives Leah and Rachel knew that God had told him to go home to his family. And even they, not just his children, not just his sons and his daughter, but even his wives are seeing that he didn't do what God told him to do because he didn't go home to his family. And now his wives and his children, all of them see him lying and not being an honest man. He's not been a very good example of a godly man and, and yet turn the page. I want to show you one more verse. Turn the page to chapter 35 and I want you to look at that first verse. Look at what it says in Genesis 35 verse 1. Then God said to Yaakov, Arise, go up to Beit El, Bethel. Remember that's how we say it in Hebrew, Beit El, the place of God. God says, Arise and go up to Beit El and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. That's it. I, I want to show you that verse because, because, wow, God didn't condemn Yaakov for any of the stuff that he had just done. Those lies he said, going to the wrong place, he didn't mention it. He, he didn't say any of that. He didn't punish Yaakov. He just calmly lets Yaakov realize that he should have gone where God was leading him to go. He should have gone where God told him to go. Now God didn't say, I told you so. You should have done what I told you to do. Now look at the mess you've made. Look at all the trouble you've caused. No, God didn't get angry with Yaakov. He didn't scold him. He didn't make him even feel worse. God simply said, arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Notice that God is saying two things here. First, he's saying, go back to the first place where you met me. Go back to the way it was when you met me, how you loved me, how you were in awe of me. Go back to where I met you, Yaakov, in a way he was saying, return to your first love. Where was God telling Yaakov to go? Back to Beit El. Remember what Bedel says? The place of God. Go back to the place of God. Go back to the place of God. He was saying, you've tried the ways of man, Yaakov, and you've gone to the place that man thinks you should have gone to, and that didn't work out, did it? Now go back to the place of God. Let me govern your life. Stop trying to govern your life. Give it back to me. Stop being Yaakov. Get back into being Israel. Stop being governed by your own unethical theft and dishonesty and all your business acumen. Don't be governed by that. Come now to be Israel. Be governed by God again. Go back to where you left God, he was saying. I'm still waiting there for you. Return to me, the Lord is saying. 
and I will take care of you and watch over you. That's what God does for you when you're his child. When you give your life to him, when you go where God leads. Amen. Now, as we see these things today, doesn't it prompt you to want to give your life to the Lord? You can give your life to God today, right now. If you call out to Him, He'll hear that cry. He'll answer you. He'll rescue you from that darkness, that situation you're in. He'll shine His light on your heart and you'll be given new life. He'll change you into a new person. Throw all of those past failures away, not try to condemn you for them, you see. You'll be made completely new, given a new start. And He'll give you everlasting life in heaven, His kingdom. And that's guaranteed by God Himself. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Lord and to receive God's peace in your life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. Just pray something like this. You can repeat it after me if you'd like. Just say, God, I do want to know You and have real peace in life. I do believe on Your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins, Father. I give my life to You. Thank You, Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, God heard you. And He's already started working in your life. A little seed's been planted deep down in your heart. And over time, you're going to begin to see the wonderful changes that God's making in your life. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about the Lord every day in His Word. Talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do beautiful things in your life.